welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. The Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 25, New Living Translation. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, New Living Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and a part-time evening planning consultant. He rearranges the chairs in the conference room when we have meetings. Today on Anchored by Truth, as we approach Christmas, We want to continue our series where we focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Seabook's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. Eagle Enigma is the second part of the Golden Tree trilogy. The first installment was The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. And copies of it are available from our website, which is crystalseabooks.com. Even though we're playing Eagle Enigma on our broadcasts and podcasts, it has not yet been released for people to get their own copy, but that will happen in the near future. Today, we're coming to part five out of seven of the poem. So we're getting close to bringing it home, right, R.D.? We are indeed. Now, for any listeners who weren't able to be with us for our last few episodes, we need to tell them that the Golden Tree Eagle Enigma is a poem that's written in the style of some of the classic Christmas stories. It was written in seven parts, and each part of this story ends in sort of a cliffhanger. So now that we're at part five, we're pretty deep into the story. But just as a quick refresher, the Golden Tree Eagle Enigma is about a group of small koala bears who live in the Arctic. But they live in a valley that's kept green and warm because in the middle of this valley is the Golden Tree. And that golden tree helps the valley stay not only warm, but also fertile. Well, the bears have been there for several generations, but last Christmas season, just as Christmas was approaching, a demon lord and his horde came marching into the bears' town, telling the bears that they had come to steal the tree. Now, the bears confronted the demon lord, and ultimately, the demon lord and his horde were driven off. But in the contest, the tree's guardian, Komari, was lost. So since Komari's loss, no new bear has been able to pass the guardian's test. So the bears are now worried about the tree's survival. So three of the bears, named Kodan, Koru, and Kojan, set out on a quest to find the home of the great white koala bear to ask for his help. But during the course of their journey, they've come across an uncrossable canyon, and that uncrossable canyon, as bad as it is, is guarded by huge ice eagles. 
So now the bears on the quest are trying to solve this seemingly unsolvable enigma. Sounds like we're getting to the good part. So let's continue with the story. Here's part five of Crystal Sea Book's Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Eagle Enigma. For two eagles landed, and Kodan observed. These eagles must be heaven sent. I believe their presence near the great gulf is more than mere accident. I believe they've come to take us across and not to make us their prey. I believe they're sent from the great white bear to take us the rest of the way. Kojan remarked, Since two have come down, it may be you are right. But why is one bird the purest gold and the other immaculate white? Kodan replied while he stared at the birds perched on the side of the gap. One is from the great white bear, but the other is the demon lord's trap. How do their colors make this clear? Queried a puzzled Kojan. Kodan responded, No hue or shade tells me this, but the number two is wrong. Either of these birds could carry ten of us, so one eagle fills our need. And if we were each to have our own, the number that came would be three. Since two have come, we must conclude. The demon lord knows we are here. He sent his servant to confuse our path, in hopes from our goal will veer. He knows that if we pick the wrong bird, we'll suffer, though we had good intent. For the great white bear permits free choice, even when it brings sad events. Haru then said, If this be the truth, a dangerous quandary we must pierce. For if we pick the demon's wicked bird, we'll soon meet a rage most fierce. Kojan then said, There are three of us. One must choose a winged steed. The others will watch, wait, and see whether that choice did succeed. Kodan replied, I agree, and I'll go, and certain questions I will ask. For it may be possible to listen and learn, and the imposter bird to unmask. Kojan and Kuru protested quite loud, but a fixed heart was Kodan. He strode out from the sheltering rock before the mighty eagles to stand. Both eagles towered above the brave bear, their beaks and talons keen blades. One had come from the city of gold, one from hell's dark glades. As Kodan pondered what questions to ask, he studied the great bird's eyes. The white bird had jet black orbs. The golds were the blue of the skies. Mighty gold eagle, if I fly with you, where will you set my feet? The gold eagle said, 
To home you will go, for your life is not yet complete. The City of Gold is not the place for bears with years left to live. Save your life and fly with me, for much to this world you can give. Great White Eagle, if I fly with you, where will you set my feet? The White Eagle said, You land in a place where gold covers every street. I have been sent by the Great White Bear to take you to your rightful place. I am come to reward your group for the dangers you have faced. Kodan pondered the answers he heard from the eagles he stood before. They were still as sculptures placed to guard the bank of the Great Gap's shore. He decided he must query one more time before he made his final choice. He turned once more to the City of Gold, then asked with questioning voice, Okay, so this part doesn't end with a cliffhanging. It ends with a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Which eagle is there to help the bears? And which of the eagles is there to destroy them? So the question is, what happens? And knowing you, the answer is to tune in next time. That sounds like a brilliant suggestion. And maybe our listeners could gather some family members to join them while they're listening. Sounds even better. Listening to the Golden Tree as a family could be a great way for parents or grandparents to connect with their kids and help them develop their faith. It would make a great centerpiece for a homeschool study group or church youth group discussion about the role that courage and commitment play in the Christian faith, something that's particularly relevant as we get closer and closer to Christmas. Right. You know, someone once said that the Christian faith is so simple that even children can comprehend enough about it to understand the plan of salvation. But even though we should begin our Christian journey with the faith of a child, we should always pursue the goal of developing a truly mature Christian faith. God will meet us wherever we are, and God will help us wherever we are in our faith journey. But God is not going to be satisfied just leaving us at the starting line. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus doesn't just initiate our faith, Jesus also wants to perfect it. And part of perfecting our faith is ensuring that we understand what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Well, so far, we've seen that there are extra-biblical sources that confirm that Jesus was a real historical figure who lived and died in Judea during the time period described by the Bible. But we've also seen that it's as helpful as it is to know that there are secular sources that confirm Jesus' life, and those sources aren't enough to tell us everything we need to know about Jesus. We can only get a complete revelation about Jesus from God's special revelation to people, the Bible. And, as we saw in our last episode, and again in today's scriptures, Jesus' statements about himself tell us something pretty important that Jesus is not only fully human, but also fully divine. Yes, and that takes us to the next subject that we need to talk about as we continue to focus on the life of Jesus in preparation for celebrating his birth at Christmas. And that is... 
And that is that because Jesus is the central figure, not just of Christianity, but of the entire Bible, one of the criticisms that's sometimes directed towards Jesus is that the attributes that the Bible assigns to Jesus were borrowed from other cultures or other religious sources. So Christians need to be familiar with how they can counter these assertions that Jesus' deeds, especially his miracles, were simply drawn from other religious myths or pagan characters. Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about? Sure. For instance, it's been alleged that Jesus' miraculous conception is not a unique belief. Critics will say that mythological figures, Hercules for instance, was also supposed to be born as the son of a divine father, in this case Zeus, and a mortal mother. But of course there are significant differences between Hercules' purported conception and Jesus's. In the Greek legend, Hercules' mother was named Alcmene. Zeus was supposed to have taken on human form of Alcmene's husband and deceived her and slept with her. And that's how Hercules was conceived. That's not nearly the same thing as Jesus being born of Mary while Mary was literally still a virgin. And the differences are even more pronounced than just that. Hercules was actually the Roman name of a hero that the Romans adapted from Greek and the Greek hero was named Heracles. Now, according to the Greek legend, Heracles' mother, Alcmene, was simultaneously pregnant with Heracles by Zeus, but she was also pregnant with Heracles' half-brother, Iphicles, by her natural husband. And that's only the beginning of the legendary aspects in Alcmene's pregnancy with Heracles. So as soon as you get beyond the superficial similarity, and you look at the actual details of the story, The notion that Jesus' conception was somehow an imitation or adaptation of the Heracles-Hercules myth, that just falls apart immediately. But this is a good example of one kind of an obviously fallacious attack that's directed against the historicity of Jesus. So what you're saying is that one form of attack that's leveled at Jesus has to do with a particular attribute of Jesus, and then trying to find a parallel somewhere else in a different religion that's obviously false. The critics then try to discredit the life of Jesus by saying that if story A is false, then story B must be false also. Right. But that makes as much sense as saying that if there are two $5 bills on the table, and we know one of those bills is counterfeit, that the other bill on the table must also be counterfeit. Well, that's just silly. It's easily possible one of the bills is counterfeit, but the other bill is real. Well, of course, that's also true in the case of Jesus. The pagan myths may be completely false, but that has no bearing whatsoever on the historicity of Jesus' life. Just because some details correspond superficially, the pagan myths, again, have no impact whatsoever on the historicity of Jesus as a real figure who lived in history. We also need to recognize that the copycat thesis, in general, is less concerned with the specifics of Jesus' life, and these copycats are more concerned with the generalities that would be associated with just about any supernatural figure. Again. Do you have any specific examples in mind? Well, for instance, since sickness and disease are obviously a plague on human existence... No pun intended. No pun intended. Anyway, since sickness and disease are a problem and have been a problem for all humans everywhere since Adam and Eve, the ability to bring about miraculous healing would be expected to be a staple of myths or legends, and they are. 
For instance, there's a mythological figure named Asclepius, or Asclepios, who was a Greek demigod who was their god of medicine. And Asclepios was supposed to have raised Hippolytus from the death, though he was ultimately killed by Zeus for doing so. Asclepius was supposed to be the son of the god Apollo and a human mother. And another figure who was supposed to have been able to perform miraculous acts of healing was Buddha. Buddha was supposed to also have been able to cure the sick. But again, these kinds of general miracle workings of mythological characters vary considerably from the information we have about the miracles that Jesus performed. For instance, in the case of Jesus curing Peter's mother, we have precise details of a location where the miracle was done, the people involved, and even a pretty close approximation to the timing. And many of Jesus' healings involve specific details that confirm to the religious and cultural conventions known to exist, such as when he healed the lepers and then told them to go show themselves to a priest, which was required by Jewish law. And Jesus' healing miracles weren't always the cause of celebration the way you would expect of a miracle. Like when Jesus restored the eyesight of a man born blind, the blind man was rejected by the religious leaders and cast out by them. Exactly. The description of Jesus' miracles, of his healings or other miracles, those descriptions read like historical accounts because they are historical accounts. Again, the key to drawing distinctions between Jesus' miracles and those general sorts of miraculous powers that are associated with pagan sources The key to the difference is in the details. The Bible accounts provide the details of those miracles. They tell us dates and times and places and other people who are around. So the Bible's accounts of miracles and of Jesus' healings, they're not general assertions. They're very specific in the details that they provide. So at a minimum, the people of the time that the Bible books were originally written would have had some capacity to be able to verify those details. And if you look to the lives or the supposed reports of the pagan mythological figures, you don't find those details. But in the case of Buddha, there is at least one other way of refuting that somehow the Bible's descriptions of Jesus are drawn from the life of Buddha. The earliest known account of Buddha's life was written in the 2nd century A.D., So the accounts of Buddha came after Jesus, not before Jesus. And that's true for another supposedly religious figure who purportedly served as the source for many of the details of Christ's life, and that's a mythological figure named Mithra. In Mithra's manifestation during the Roman period, Mithra was supposed to have been born on December 25th, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, had a final meal before he died, and supposedly Mithra rose from the grave after three days. And since Mithra was a religious figure that was known to come from the Persian culture, modern-day Iran, supposedly he was the inspiration for much of what the disciples taught about Jesus, right? Right. Well, the earliest mention of Mithra as a figure at all is around 1400 B.C. So, as a religious figure, Mithra would predate Christ by a considerable time period. But the problem is that the earliest mentions of Mithra as a religious figure are not Roman. In fact, they're Iranian. And the Iranian version of Mithra does not correspond in any way to the Roman version. The Roman version of Mithra is best known for slaying a bull whereas there is no known to Mithra slaying a bull in the Iranian version of Mithra. So, many scholars believe that there might have been some cross-pollination between Christ and the Roman version of Mithra 
But given the timing of the appearance of the similarities, it's far more likely that the legends of Mithra borrowed from Christianity and not vice versa. And in a strange way, that would have been almost fair. Because there was one way in which early Christianity did borrow from Mithraism, and that was in art. In the early part of the 3rd century AD, around 313, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued what was called the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, Before Constantine, the Roman emperors had generally been very hostile to Christians. But within 10 years after Constantine accepted Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, Mithraism also seems to have gained a strong foothold within the empire as well. Well, in the 3rd and 4th centuries then, there were church officials who were having to combat the appearance of Mithraism within the Roman Empire. So the Roman church officials seem to have embarked on an effort to prove that their faith was the superior one. So they actually began on a sort of advertising campaign. And one commentator who talks about this part of history says that the Roman church officials were reminiscent of our soft drink wars. For instance, the Roman church officials took to creating art that mimicked some of the scenes that were portrayed in the supposed life of Mithra. Mithra was depicted as slaying a bull while riding its back. Well, the church of that time did a look-alike scene with Samson killing a lion. And Mithra supposedly had sent arrows into a rock to bring forth water. Well, the church changed that scene in their art to Moses getting water from the rock at Horeb. So in an odd way, the Roman officials did borrow from Mithraism, but they borrowed it in the art, not in the historical recounts of the events of Jesus' life. That sounds suspiciously like the law of unintended consequences. The church officials in the 3rd and 4th century went on a campaign to prove that Christianity was superior to Mithraism, and 1,600 years later, the church now has to defend itself against the claim that Jesus' life and ministry were the copycat version. And I think that's an excellent observation. So let's close out today with one more quick example. In Hinduism, Krishna was supposed to have had a miraculous conception, so some critics say that Krishna's legend was a possible inspiration for the Christian idea of a miraculous conception. But in that case, Krishna's miraculous conception is his mom being impregnated by mental transmission from his completely human father. Again, not remotely similar to the Bible's description of how Mary became pregnant. And let's add to that, How credible would it be that the first Christians, who were largely Jews from Palestine, would have borrowed a legend from a country that was a thousand miles away? At a minimum, the Jews of that time were fiercely monotheistic, whereas Hinduism is distinctly polytheistic. So again, this points to the need for us to not only examine the superficial correspondences where these alleged copycats exist, but to look at the details. Because when you look at the details, these alleged instances of borrowing fall away very quickly. At a minimum, cultural factors ordinarily would have inhibited the possibility that the copycat thesis would have been viable. Very often, chronological or cultural factors alone will be enough to refute those alleged copycat possibilities. But let's go back to our earlier example with money. When new bank tellers are being taught to spot counterfeit dollars, The bank tellers are not given lots of counterfeit dollars to study. 
They're given lots and lots of real bills to feel and handle. The idea is that if tellers get so used to touching and handling and feeling the real thing, the real dollars, the fakes will become instantly recognizable. Well, that same approach will work when it comes to being able to answer many of the criticisms that are addressed at Christianity and especially at the historicity of Jesus. And that's a good lesson for us all. The more time we spend studying Scripture and developing familiarity with the details of the people, the nations, the geography, the culture, not only will we be able to be confident in our own faith, but we will also be able to point other people to the truth. Precisely. Myths and legends read like myths and legends. The myths and legends have fantastic, sensationalist details that have little or no correspondence to the things that we see about us in the real world. Good common sense would enable us very quickly to see the elements that don't make sense in our own experience, that don't make sense in physics or chemistry or biology. Our own common sense will quickly reveal to us mythological elements that are contained in the myths and legends. Now, by contrast, the history contained in the Bible reads like good histories that we see everywhere. There are specifics about people, places, times, and events, and quite often there have been archaeological finds or extra-biblical records that even provide additional confirmation about the veracity of the biblical record. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since we're so close to Christmas, Let's listen to a prayer about that special day. A Prayer for Christmas Day Wonderful Father, You are the Most High King who lives and reigns in unimaginable majesty and splendor. You superintend all creation and Your commands cannot be altered. You see the end from the beginning and are the only sure guide for your children. Lord, today we celebrate the birth of the Christ child. Though he was born in the most humble of earthly circumstances, angelic heralds, the messengers of true sovereignty, announced his birth, thereby signifying his royal heritage and that this child would be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By your command, Christ was called by many names and titles. Gabriel told Mary and Joseph the child would be called Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Through the prophet Isaiah, you proclaim the child would be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. The child would become the Christ, which means the Anointed One. The baby would also be called the Son of David, because he would inherit the throne you had granted to the greatest king of Israel. When grown, the child would call himself the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel's vision of the one who came on clouds of glory to rule and reign. By these names and others, all who looked upon the child and the man, all who know him today, understand that this child is nothing less than the divine Son of the living God. In a way we cannot fathom, Christ Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and because He is, He is fully able to save all those who put their trust in Him. Christ is God. The value of His sacrifice was therefore infinite. 
Christ is man. He can therefore represent all people who look to him to redeem them from the desperate plight of sin. Though at his birth the shepherds saw him in a manger, the truth was that at that moment the hosts of heaven still recognized their king. We glorify you, O Lord, for the manifest goodness that you gave to us. We fall down in worship and praise for so great a salvation, and we pray that his name and yours will be honored in our hearts and in hearts all over the world. We pray that you would help us to proclaim this glorious news, not only today, but every day. We pray that you would open hearts to receive the good news. Because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we have the confidence to come before your throne and to pray in his grace-filled name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in a series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all those episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion on the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of the show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest, are available from our website. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.